The following message was given by Nick Kidwell, the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. Please turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 14, where we will be reading verses 13 to 36. One of the joys of going through the book of Matthew together going through any book of the Bible together, and especially one like Matthew, is that we get to take time to fully digest arguments and themes. And in the section this morning, we're going to be reading not only some of the most well-known miracles in the life of Christ, but we get affirmation yet again of who Jesus is. So we're going to get to look at different angles and continue considering together the attributes of Christ. If there's one thing that I personally have gained as we've been going through Matthew, it's been an ever-growing affection for the person of Jesus Christ, his heart, his being, his character, what makes him tick. And Matthew really wants us to get this, and he wants us to love Jesus just as he does. And so what we're going to read this morning, I pray, will do just that for us, stir our hearts to deepen our affections and wonder for this God-man who has extended his love to us. So let me pray before we read. Father, we ask that you would meet with us this morning through your word. Pray that you be with me as I seek to communicate your truth. Father, and we just pray that you would affect us and change us and help us to love and know Jesus Christ, the Son of God, more. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Matthew 14, verses 13 to 36. Now, to set the stage, last week we were talking about, uh, we had just heard about Herod and how Herod had had John executed, John the Baptist executed, and word of this uh, makes its way to Jesus. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. 
And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all the region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of the Lord. The feeding of the 5,000 is one of the only stories about the life of Christ that are included in every gospel account, including the gospel of John. And Jesus walking on water is probably one of the more broadly known miracle accounts as well. And so with that being the case, great scrutiny exists around these accounts and great misunderstandings can occur around them as well. Some of the misunderstandings are shifting the focus from Christ to the disciples. Some say these stories show us what the disciples could really do and and should be able to do if only they had enough faith, multiply the loaves, walk on water. Sometimes folks take these and seek out deep allegorical meanings. For the skeptical world, there's ever the the hunt for a naturalistic explanation of what's going on here. Maybe the 5,000 just took little nibbles of this bread, or maybe Jesus was walking on a sandbar. Well, for such well-known texts, we need to make sure we really understand what is being communicated here. And while there certainly is a secondary lesson about faithfulness and what Christ can do through us when we trust him, that's not the main point. And while there might be at times allegorical understandings we can find, those aren't the main point. And these stories certainly were not meant to be explained away naturalistically. If the 5,000 only nibbled or if Jesus was walking on a sandbar, these stories are pointless to tell. No, these miracles are given to us yet again to draw our hearts and minds to the reality of who Christ Jesus is and for us to join with the disciples as we read of them in verse 33, and those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. These stories are here to lead us to worship our great savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this confession of Jesus as the Son of God from the disciples is sincere, but for various reasons, both found in Matthew's gospel and the gospel accounts of Mark and Luke, lead us to believe it still lacks full conviction and understanding of all that Jesus was coming to do. Nevertheless, they're getting there. Their hearts are growing in amazement at what they're seeing in Christ Jesus And it's stirring them to worship him and recognize that Jesus truly is the Son of God, which should be a good indicator for us here that he is, because he doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't stop them from worshiping. We're just told that they worship. They may not quite yet get the full aspect of his mission as the Christ, the coming Messiah, but they see a power in him that they can only attribute to God himself. 
And it's to that same place I want our hearts to go this morning, adding worship, adoring worship of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Because as we'll see, Jesus is the all-powerful, all-merciful, all-sufficient Son of the living God, drawing us to Himself for our good and His glory. So we're going to look at three things this morning. The Son of God has control over all things. The Son of God welcomes our requests, and the Son of God will meet our needs. So first, the Son of God has control over all things. As humans, we like to have a feeling of control. For example, many people are more apprehensive about flying than they are about driving. Even though you would need to fly every day for more than 10,000 years to have it be likely that you would be in a fatal plane crash, whereas your chances are about 1 in 101 with regard to a car. Yet for some reason, we don't fear being in a car. Now, I'm not trying to send you all away scared <laughs> leaving the church. But I think the main reason for this is that sense of control. If you were in a car crash, you'd feel like you could grab the wheel. You could affect the situation. You could do something to increase your odds of survival. For instance, in a car, if the person driving is not braking to your, likely, uh, to your liking, what do you often do? You often push your foot down on the floorboard as if somehow this is going to affect what they're doing. That's you wanting to be in control. The reality is, though, when someone else is driving, we're not in control. When someone else is flying, we're not in control. When we step out of our doors in the morning, we may be able to make some choices, but ultimately, we're not in control. However, what we see in these two accounts is that there is somebody in control. The universe is not a haphazard collection of incidents, but it's in control. We first get this scene of Jesus withdrawing to a desolate place to pray. And these great crowds following him, eventually his disciples join him as well. In this desolate place, unless a person packed a lunch, there wouldn't have been anything for them to eat. And so the disciples, aware of this, go to Jesus and request that he send the people out to the villages so that they might get some dinner. Jesus, however, responds to their suggestion with a curious comment. He says, verse 16, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. You can imagine the astonishment of the disciples. They're thinking, okay, how in the world are we going to feed all of these people? The number we are told here of these people was 5,000 men besides women and children. This was a way Israel would often count. So it's counting the men in the gathering here. So that means this number was likely significantly more if we add in whatever women and children there were. So here is Jesus and the disciples standing among hordes of people, and Jesus says, you feed them. They say, well, Jesus, that's impossible. We only have five loaves of bread and two fish that we could scrounge up. And so Jesus then says, bring them here to me. Just what was Jesus asking of these disciples to do here? Well, I believe he's asking them to believe that God could provide. This whole exchange plays out with great parallel to a story found in 2 Kings 4. We read, 
a man from Baal Silesia came to Elisha. He brought 20 loaves of barley bread from the first harvest to Elisha. He also brought fresh grain in a sack. Then Elisha said, give it to the people to eat. Elisha's servant said, how can I feed 100 men with so little? But Elisha said, give the bread to the people to eat. This is what the Lord says. They will eat and will have food left over. Then he gave it to them. The people ate and had food left over as the Lord had said. Who is it that multiplies the barley loaves in that story? Is it Elisha? No, Elisha is simply the messenger. He says, this is what the Lord says you need to do. God multiplied the loaves. Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, feed these people. I believe he was encouraging them to have faith that God would provide in a similar fashion. However, there is a distinct difference between the story of Elisha and the story here of Jesus. Jesus never says, thus says the Lord, or God has commanded you to do this. He speaks to them directly. He commands them directly. And when they fail to in some way acknowledge what God could do in this situation, he doesn't say, all right then, the Lord says, I must be the one to do this. No, he simply says, bring them to me. Then he takes the bread, he breaks it, and he doesn't even ask God to provide. He simply offers a blessing like a father would do in Israel presiding over the family meal. He breaks the bread and it multiplies and it feeds the multitudes. The disciples miss the opportunity to have believed God's ability to provide for these crowds. But not only did they fail to believe God could do it, they were still blind to who it was that was standing right in front of them. They weren't interacting with just another Elisha with just another prophet. No, they were speaking directly to the Son of God, the Lord himself. Jesus doesn't have to say, as the Lord says, because he himself is the Lord. And Jesus uses this moment of the loaves and the fish to point them yet again to that. He can command all things. Even these loaves and these fish to serve the purposes that he needs them to serve. He is in control. But our passage doesn't stop there. As Jesus seeks to send the crowds away and pray yet again, the disciples set off on a boat's journey to their next stop. In the meantime, the waves pick up and, and the wind picks up and the boat's being tossed around, so Jesus decides it's time to join them. And how does he get to them? Well, he just takes this casual stroll out <laughs> along the water to meet them. The scene's so shocking that these disciples can only assume that what they're looking at is a ghost. Jesus, knowing their fears, he calms them, ensuring them that they need not be afraid it's at this point that Peter, struck by the power of it all, says to Jesus, if it's you, and this is more of a rhetorical question than inquisitive, if it's you, which I know it is, Lord, call me to come out to you. And Jesus does. And Peter, with his eyes firmly fixed on Jesus, sets out, and we're told he made it to Jesus. It's then, though, that the waves are picking up and Peter looks around and he begins to fear and he sinks and he cries out, Lord, save me. Jesus grabs him, pulls him up. 
They get into the boat, and the winds and the waves cease. Jesus then says to Peter, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? What was it we have to ask that Peter was doubting? Was he doubting his own abilities? Was he doubting God generally? Or is Jesus saying to Peter, why did you doubt me? I believe given the context of this narrative, it's the latter. Peter, have I not shown you? Do you not see? I have control over this situation. Why did you doubt that? We're then told they come to the other side and Jesus yet again heals those who are sick and continues working many miracles. Here, Jesus controls the loaves and the fish, material goods. Jesus commands the winds and the sea. He can even defy gravity and the laws of physics themselves. Here, Jesus controls diseases. If there's one giant banner that could be placed over these two stories and all the other miracle accounts, it's this. Jesus is in control. And the disciples are starting to see that, which is why they're amazed And they worship him. You only worship God. You don't worship anything else. They worship him. And they declare, truly you are the son of God. This is not just another prophet directing and declaring what the Lord commands. This is the Lord himself speaking on his own behalf with his own authority, casually commanding nature to obey his very command when it's necessary to do so. We're told in Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. We're told it is Jesus through whom, for whom, and by whom all things exist and all things are held together. So what does this mean for us? Well, one, it means we shouldn't be surprised to see Jesus work what we would call a miracle, something outside of the normal operating mode of the universe. Jesus and conversely God the Father and the Holy Spirit can do whatever they want. Jesus made it. He can alter the operating code however he would like. Two, it means if we've placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we could take comfort because God is sovereign over all things. Now, as we will discuss in a minute, that doesn't mean we'll never experience pain or hardship We were reflecting on this earlier. That doesn't mean things will always go how we want them to go. But what it does mean is we don't have to worry that a single thing that comes to pass has caught God off guard or that God somehow cannot handle a situation that we are facing. God has full and final authority over every single thing in created existence. That includes full sovereignty over the powers of evil themselves. Satan himself has no ability to do anything except that which God in his sovereign wisdom and merciful will has allowed to pass. Jesus himself makes clear he did not go to the cross at the will of someone else. He laid his life willingly down according to the plan of God from eternity past. Now, as with all matters 
of sovereignty. It can raise questions and there's things we wrestle with God over, but this reality is an encouragement and a comfort to us. God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ with the effective power of the Holy Spirit have control over all things. And as a child of God, this gives us comfort knowing that He in fact can bring to completion what He's begun and He can work all things together for our good which He promises to do. As believers, we so often live in fear of the wind and the waves. And Jesus says, have no fear of them. Look to me. Believe in God. I am in control. Knowing this, knowing God's control, not only calms us, but then it also encourages us to approach him with our needs, which leads us to the second thing we'll see about God. So, Son of God's in control over all things, and he welcomes our requests. Verse 13 reads, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place to pray by himself. What is it that Jesus heard? Well, it could be two things. Either it was he heard about Herod's reaction to Jesus' teaching and how Herod believed that was John raised from the dead, or it follows right after the flashback we read of what happened to John. And so it's Jesus hearing about John the Baptist's death. Either way, you have Christ personally affected by this news. But I do believe it's saying when Jesus hears about the death of John the Baptist. And so here we have Jesus having just heard about the death of his relative, the death of the last great Old Testament prophet, the death of his friend, and I'm sure he's grieving. We know from the story of Lazarus that even though Jesus, in all his wisdom, allowed Lazarus to pass, Lazarus's death wasn't outside of Jesus's control. Nevertheless, Jesus wept. He was sad at the loss of a friend. I'm certain the same plays out here. Jesus, not surprised by John's death, but grieving nonetheless, withdraws to have a moment to pray and grieve the loss of this brother. Yet then we read as verse 13 continues, but when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So Jesus gets into the boat with the intention of going to another spot on the shoreline, a desolate spot where he could be alone. The people hear about this and they walk the shoreline and they beat him there so that when the boat arrives, they're all standing there on the shore waving at him. So long, private time, Jesus. I don't know about you, but I can only imagine my personal response to such a thing and it wouldn't be very good. There's nothing more frustrating than having grand plans in your head of some personal time of relaxation or whatnot and it being disrupted. And as I was thinking about this, there is a comedy from the 1990s that came to my mind called What About Bob, if you've ever seen that movie. So Bob Wiley, he's this troubled man with many phobias and great anxiety whose psychiatrist, Dr. Leo Marvin goes on vacation with his family. Well, Bob can't stand the thought of not having access to Dr. Marvin, so 
Bob, through a series of schemes, figures out where Dr. Marvin and his family are. He goes there. He winds up weaseling his way not only into Dr. Marvin's house, but into the hearts of his family. Dr. Marvin desperately wanted to get away from his work, and to his dismay, here is Bob sitting at his dinner table, sleeping in his son's bedroom. So Dr. Marvin's inability to send Bob away eventually drives him utterly insane, leaves him catatonic, unable to speak for, it seems like, a year or more, because he could not take Bob. I think we could all imagine that we would join in the frustration and anger of Dr. Marvin in this scenario. He'd gone away to the lake. He wanted to get away. And then here's Bob. Well, how different, though, is our Lord from us? And he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Jesus is never put off by the approach of the needy. Never. In fact, it's not just that he's not put off, but the fact is that what he desires and has asked for us to do is come to him. We have spoken often about God being a communicative God, how he has not left himself without witness and how he has given us his word. There's a flip side to this. He also wants us to communicate with him. Again, this pops up from the first pages of Scripture when Adam and Eve sin in the garden. God knows exactly what they've done. And when they're hiding, he knows exactly where they are, but he doesn't just say, hey, I know you're behind that bush. Come out. I know what you did. He asks them, where are you? Have you eaten from the tree? He wants them to respond. He wants them to communicate with him. This is the heart of our God. And while we certainly are to confess our sins and, and before him and ask for forgiveness, that's the base of all our communication with God, as Adam and Eve needed to do, the Lord also wants us to bring all our other needs and our requests before him. And that's what we see here in this passage. We see the people approaching Jesus, the Son of God, asking him to heal their diseases. We see Jesus responding to the needs of the people for food, which they've presented to him. When, when Peter asked the Lord to call on him to step out in faith, Jesus responds and he gives Peter the ability to do this. When Peter's falling due to his unbelief and cries out, Lord, save me, Jesus responds. And when the people, as we read, continue to bring before him the sick, he listens and he responds. This is the heart of God. We're told we are to pray without ceasing in the book of 1 Thessalonians. In Philippians, we're told that in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, we're to let our requests be made known to God. We read in the book of 1 John, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that have been asked of him. Now, we'll talk in just a minute again about God's response to our requests, and what we ought to expect and how to process the times when we don't get the response we were hoping for. But nevertheless, Scripture is abundantly clear. We are to bring our requests before God continually. However big or small, we are to entrust 
all things to him. The book of James tells us that we do not have because we do not ask. And that we do not receive because we ask wrongly to spend on our requests and our own evil passions. Yes, James reminds us that we may not receive if we're seeking it with the wrong heart. Nevertheless, we're being told to ask and to grow in asking in line with the heart of God. When did God free the people of Israel from Egypt? When the people cried out to him. Exodus 2 says the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God knew before they cried. God had told Abraham 400 years before exactly how long it would be until the people of Israel were brought out. Yet in God's sovereign will, he designed it that the catalyst of the events that unfolded would be the people crying out to him. We see this all over the pages of Scripture. God not only responding to his people's requests and hearing them, but inviting them to call out and, in fact, ordaining the events that unfold to be in response to his people's prayers. Psalm 145 said, The Lord is near to all who call on him. He also hears their cry and saves them. We read in Matthew 7, Jesus say, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And just a few chapters ago, we hear Jesus say, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. You almost get the sense of God saying, how many times do I have to tell you, please bring your needs to me. I'm here. God draws us and calls us to himself. Yet in that process, he has designed it that we would open our mouths and we would call out. He knows our thoughts, but he wants us to consciously articulate them to him. And God has set it up that our approach to him would be through his son, the son of God, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4 says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He cares about us but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then draw near the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can boldly approach our God with our request through His Son, Jesus Christ. God is not like us. He doesn't tire He doesn't get worn out. There's never an inconvenient moment for him. He's never bothered by your approach. And in fact, he commands it, pray without ceasing. Now, this doesn't mean you're locked up in your room on your knees praying all day. This means that in all things you do, you're full of gratitude to God, praising him and recognizing you need him to supply the strength, asking him for the strength to do all things. In Scripture, People bring their need for healing to him, their need for material provision to him. 
We're told to ask for wisdom and to seek it. We're told to ask that we might receive gifts from his Holy Spirit. We see modeled in the Psalms all manner of requests for comfort, for forgiveness, for understanding, for vindication, for protection. The list could go on. If there's one thing now, another banner I want over this, you are not a bother to God. God is in control of all things and you are not a bother to God. He is eager for you to bring all your needs to him. And in fact, if we are to walk as he's called us to walk, we must do this to receive the strength and perseverance that he promises to provide. So I encourage you to consider, is there something you haven't been bringing before God? Whether purposefully to hide it, apathetically, not even thinking about God being a source of help in this situation, or sheepishly thinking he wouldn't care, or he's got bigger things to worry about. Set all of those lies aside, draw near the throne of grace daily, and without ceasing, pour out your heart before him. And if you're here and you don't have a relationship with God, through his son, Jesus Christ, and Jesus is the only way to the Father. If we want to know God, we have to know Jesus Christ, his son. This offer is open up to you. Jesus invites you right now in this moment to come to him, to bring your needs before him, starting with your greatest need, forgiveness, and the forgiveness that he offers through his death and resurrection on the cross. If we've not submitted ourselves to Jesus Christ, if we've not repented of our sins, we have no assurances that God will act on our behalf. I quoted Psalm 145 earlier. It goes on to say, He fulfills the desires of those who fear Him. He also hears their cry and saves them. To be able to come boldly before God with all of our requests, we have to do so through His Son, Jesus Christ. And when we do, when we trust Christ, believe he has control over all things and bring our requests to him, he will abundantly meet our needs. The Son of God abundantly meets our needs. The scene of Jesus feeding the 5,000 should stir to mind many things. For one, we're reminded as these people find themselves in a desolate place without food, of God's provision for the people of Israel in the wilderness. God miraculously met their needs each and every day through the manna that he provided and the water that flowed from the rock. Each and every day, the people of Israel could take comfort and full assurance that God was going to provide for their daily provisions. Though at times they might not have liked what he was providing for them, they could take assurance they would have something to eat. Our God is a God who provides. Christ at one point reminds us that if our earthly fathers who are evil do not give us a stone when we ask for bread, how much more will our heavenly Father who is perfect give us who ask? Now, again, as I alluded to, God's response to our requests is not always what we want. We know, for instance, as I mentioned earlier, Christ allowed his friend Lazarus to meet death because God had greater glory planned for the people. We know Paul's thorn in his side, whatever that was, was not removed. 
We know when James and John, the sons of Zebedee, requested that they be seated at the place of honor next to Christ in his kingdom, Christ reminded them that the kingdom's for the lowly of heart and not for the proud. Sometimes God has a different plan. And though the healing or the provision or the breakthrough seems like to us that it would be best right now at this moment, sometimes like Lazarus, he's got different timing. Sometimes, like Paul, the breakthrough doesn't come because God's working something else out within us and around us. Paul was learning the greater lesson that when he's weak, then he's strong because he's relying not on himself but on God. This was a greater need that Paul had to learn than to have whatever this thorn was be removed from him. And so God worked it out that way for his good. And then there are times, as James reminded us, that we ask and do not receive because we ask for our own evil passions. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were puffed up with pride, the sons of thunder. And Jesus was not going to grant them a request that would further that tendency. We don't always know why God is silent at times. And it's hard. But what I want us to dwell on right now And what we see in our passage is that no matter what the seeming answer is in the present for us, if we have placed our faith and trust in God, if we are his people, his adopted children, members of his kingdom, then he will provide for us and he will do so abundantly. When the multitudes were fed, what happened? Did they just scrape by? No, there were basket loads of food left over. But there's a number given. How many baskets of food were left? Twelve. Why twelve? How many tribes are there in Israel? Twelve. How many apostles are there? There's twelve. Jesus saying, I can and will provide for you, so much so that even the leftovers of my provision are enough to cover all of your needs. The leftovers cover the 12 tribes. The leftovers cover the 12 apostles. The leftovers cover my people. My scraps are a feast of provision. Ephesians 3 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, There is a very real reality that our minds can't even conceive of great enough things to ask God to do, that he would be willing to do. We can't think of it because he's so high and glorious. And the greatest thing that God does for us and has given us is himself. Jesus breaks the bread and he distributes it and it's overflowing with provision. There's another meal where he would break bread and distribute it, the Last Supper. And he tells us that his body is the bread, broken for us. Jesus at one point says in John, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus gave himself for us. And that truly meets our greatest needs here in this world. We may not get the promotion or the funds. We may not find the spouse that we want. We may struggle with a sin that we have been fighting. The storm may carry on. And at times we may even face hunger and starvation in this life. 
But if you are a child of God, do not think for a second that these things are taking place because God does not love you or because he's forgotten you. He has not, and he does love you. We are told he works all things together for the good of those who love him. Now, this is a mystery, but he's working so much together that we cannot possibly conceive of. If God doesn't answer you the way that you'd like, it's because he's working something good out for you. It doesn't mean it's not hard, but it means we can stand confident, have peace, and like Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, we can in all things, whether facing want or plenty, be content in him. And even if the challenges we face right now are in some way a result of sin in our lives, or or we don't receive because we are asking wrongly, even in that, In God's discipline, we're reminded that he disciplines those he loves. That's him working good out for us. That's him loving us. It's hard for us to imagine, but it is a deep and glorious reality that we have to cling to. But there's one more thing here that we see in this meal, and it's a foreshadowing of the marriage supper of the Lamb. The great day when we will all be gathered together as we enter into eternal glory with Christ our God. And on that day, the feast will never end. We're told of God that in his right hand are pleasures forevermore. What feels like an eternity to us now as we wait for God to answer, will an eternity seem like a fleeting moment? When we will once for all, never again, Meet hunger, thirst, want, opposition, or trials. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father in glory, is preparing a room for us to join him there. The Son of God is in control of all things. He beckons us to come to him, and when we do, He meets our needs, and he does so beyond all we could ask or imagine. Let's all then remind each other of this daily, because we need reminders of this, because so often what we see are the winds and the waves and the trials and the difficulties, and we feel like God has forgotten us. We must turn to Christ, ask of him, and find all of our fulfillment in all that he is. And I will just say this, he so often does bless us in significant, unexpected ways in response to the things we ask. I think so often we feel like our prayers aren't answered because we aren't asking very much. (laughs) We don't pray enough. I've felt this in my own life. There have been times where I've been more diligent in prayer and times where I've less. And when are the times I saw most prayers answered? When I was more diligent in prayer. And I was bringing more requests to him. And I was seeing him interact with those requests more often. He wants us to come to him. Let's do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace.
Thank you that Jesus is the Son of God. Thank you that you yourself came down, took on flesh, walked among us that we could know you and have bold access before you. Thank you that you are in control of all things. Help us remember that today. Whatever the storm, whatever the trial, whatever the difficulty, help us to remember you are in control. And if we have trusted in Jesus Christ, he will deliver us, whether on this earth or in the age to come, we have abundant provision from Christ Jesus. Sustain us, Lord, in the goodness of this truth. Help us to believe these things, that you're in control, that you hear us, that you want us to come to you, and that you will abundantly provide. And Lord, as we find our fullest provision found in you and the goodness of who you are, help us to well up with joy and gratitude and love overflowing. We love because you first loved us. We pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Nick Kidwell given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.